Welcome everyone. Glad you're here this morning. I'm really excited to spend this time with you. I want to give a special shout out to Every Nation Seattle. Really glad that you're here as well. We welcome you and uh, it's fun to do this together. So what we are looking at, we, we started a series last week on the letters from Paul. And what we wanted to do was not just kind of um, uh, go into one particular letter in depth. We kind of wanted to do an overview for this reason. We wanted to see what was Paul's heartbeat uh, in the specific occasions that he was writing these letters. We want to be able to uh, grab hold of this idea that Paul isn't just interested in sending a list of facts or propositions or doctrinal statements to churches. He's trying to take where they're at and bring the gospel of Jesus into those places. And so today, we're going to be looking at the book of Romans. And if there was any book that we would be tempted to say that this is just Paul, he finally could kind of leave behind um, uh, a particular occasion or issue that needed to be addressed. And he just had a chance to finally say what he wanted to say about the gospel. Uh, but actually, uh, the book of Romans is as much about a particular occasion as any of the other books are. And what it reveals, as the other books do, is how Paul deals with human problems. And so what was this problem in Rome that he was wanting to address? Well, it was about division. The Jews and the Gentiles in the Roman church were not getting along. And so he wrote uh, chapters 1 to 16 to address that problem. And uh, it's interesting that it took him that long to kind of get around to what he wanted to say that he think would be a suitable answer to address the issues that they were struggling with. This idea of division between Jew and Gentile, it goes far deeper than just kind of an ethnic divide. Uh, it wouldn't be uh, the same as saying, you know, there's a difference between uh, Asian Christians and Western Christians. I think it runs more deeper than that. It's more like saying there were Muslims and they were Buddhists and uh, they came to know Jesus and now they're trying to figure that out. It's more like that. And this is a bigger deal because if you think about what wars are that, that happen in the, in the world, they're often religious wars. And so there's something about the religion that we grow up with that really uh, shapes our identity and who we are. And so we can come to Jesus and, and want to follow him, but there's something in our, in our fabric that, uh, that kind of shapes how we approach him. And so you can imagine somebody from a Buddhist background versus a Muslim background, they're going to be approaching Jesus in very different ways. And so that created a clash inside of the church. Uh, the same can be true for us, that the primary reason why when people study what causes division, they say that the, one of the primary reasons why we're divided against other people is because of our values. That when our values clash with somebody else, that causes a breakup in the relationship. We look at marriage, that we have a different value of how money is spent or how we're going to spend our family vacation or our view of sexuality or emotional intimacy. And it's these 
It's these values that are coming together that cause the tension in the relationship. It would be the same why people leave a church, is they come with certain expectations, certain things that they value, and the community that they try to join has different expectations and different values. And no matter how much they like each other and want to get along, it's these underlying values that cause the tension. You'll even experience this in work, that if you experience uh, your boss as someone who is only concerned about the bottom line and just wanting to use you to make money, that's a different value. You're wanting to be respected and valued as a person. You wanting to be able to contribute creatively, perhaps. And so uh, uh, division is mostly caused through a conflict of deep-seated kind of worldviews and values. Now, the typical way I think that we would look at division is that it isn't really about values. You go, well, that's a little too complicated and heady for me to think about that. Really what it's about, it's about hurt. And the reason why I uh, don't want to be with somebody and get insulted and angry with people is because they've hurt me. They've done something that's really upset me, that's violated me in some way, and that's the root of my, uh, of my division, my wanting to be separate from them. Well, what's interesting about hurt is that uh, what it reveals is a value. And the value is, I really value personal pleasure. I really value a painless life. And if you come along and cause me pain, you have betrayed one of my deepest values. And so uh, we can't walk together. So even a hurt motivation is actually based on this idea of, of underlying values that are coming into conflict with one another. Now, in this time that we're in right now of physical distancing, we see the effects of isolation. We see, in a sense, what division causes in people. And I am particularly uh, concerned, and my heart goes out to people who are single, who aren't living with other people. This is a very difficult time. And um, people are really struggling. That The longer that this goes the more difficult it's becoming. It, kind of at the beginning, it was kind of a, a novelty and, a, and a, maybe a, it felt like almost a vacation from normal life. But as this is settling in, and perhaps for the long haul, people are really discovering a deep longing for emotional connection with other people. And so this letter to Rome can just as well apply to us in this particular time and also just in general, that there's something inside of us that, that longs for meaningful connection. And how do we go about finding that? How do we overcome our divisions? So what's the classic solution? Well, uh, when you read any books on this or you just watch how people behave when they want to get along with other people, maybe there's three ways that we could uh, summarize how that occurs. The first thing that we're going to do, the first kind of classic solution, is to assume the best of the other person. Um, people always recommend listening well to the other side, really trying to understand their point of view. And where we hope to get to is if we listen long enough, we hope that we'll think, well, you know, they didn't, they didn't mean to say anything uh, insulting towards me. And, and deep down, they're really good people. And I think I can overlook this. Because if I, if I listen long enough, I can see that their, their motives are healthy and they're just, uh, they just have some values that are different than mine. And perhaps we can somehow figure out how to work together. 
And so uh, the first thing is that we would assume the best of the other person. And then uh, once there's kind of mutual respect, we would agree on a plan of unity. We would say, okay, uh, so yeah, there's some differences, but I'm pretty sure we can work this out. And so I'm going to value what you value. Hopefully you're going to value what I value. And we're going to kind of come up with a way to, to be able to work together in harmony where it's a win-win for everybody. And uh, uh, this is really kind of rules of engagement. It's, uh, it's about laws. That there's something deep inside of us that says, if I'm going to get along with somebody, then we need to play by the same rules. This is most obvious in sports. There's no way that two teams are going to be able to, quote-unquote, enjoy uh, playing against one another if they don't agree upon a set of rules, a way to engage with people where we know what's going on, we, we have some parameters to the relationship, and this almost feels like common sense. Um, if you get married, there's certain expectations that you have. If you join a church, if you're going to be employed, there's going to be a contract, and you're going to have expectations, and they are, and these are rules or laws that describe how we would get along together. So we assume the best, we agree on a way to be unified that looks like rules and laws, and then finally we act on it. We all do our part, uh, we all do our best to be able to do what we said that we would do. And this, of course, is about our performance. Once we believe the best, we set out the rules, then we try our best to fulfill those rules and to do our part the way that we agreed to do it. Uh, the problem, of course, with all of this is that history uh, isn't on our side. There's, there's more going on in the human heart than just positivity. Uh, it's hard to agree and come up with a set of rules. And even if we do, our track record of performing well in relationships is not stellar. So, uh, so, so what do we do? But, but here's what's tricky, is we can actually find these kinds of things in the Bible. When we look at the book of Romans, in chapters uh, 12 to 15 especially, Paul seems to be giving similar advice to the people in Rome. He encourages them to be humble, to be respectful, to be cooperative, to take responsibility, to be loving. These things could kind of fit into these three headings of assuming the best and agreeing on unity and, and acting well toward the other person. And it seems as though we could make the Bible um, kind of agree with a behavioral approach to living a unified life. But here's the problem. Why did the Apostle Paul spend the first 11 chapters talking about totally different stuff? Like, Everything that we would think about, about what would uh, achieve unity, he's talking about uh, Abraham and uh, the curse of the law and that we're all guilty. And it's just like, what are you doing? Like, what does this have to do with anything? The primary issue is we're not getting along. So we need to have a positive attitude, have a, a workable plan and implement that plan. Like, why are you bringing up all these theological issues when it's really seems to be kind of uh, almost irrelevant? And I think this is exactly our predicament. There's something deep within our heart that wants to be unified uh, 
With others, we, we, we deeply long for emotional, physical connection. And it's just hard to see sometimes what Jesus has to do with that, except maybe some good advice. Uh, you know, that's helpful. You can, you know, read the book of Proverbs or, or look at some parables and try to pick out of there some, some helpful little tidbits of, of how we could behave and have a positive attitude. But really, the essential nature of the gospel, uh, I fear, is deeply irrelevant to us. It doesn't really change much of how we would live, both in terms of the problems that we identify and in the solutions that we try to employ. So what's going on with Paul? Why is he spending all of this time talking about things that could look irrelevant? Well, to Paul, all personal problems, uh, interpersonal problems, all the issues that we have, are actually, he views them as symptoms. As symptoms of our relationship with God. Paul is deeply steeped in the idea that our central relationship, the, the center of our lives, needs to be God. And all the ways that we relate to other people around us is just symptomatic of that relationship. For Paul, it's not we use God to have healthier relationships. For Paul, it's we almost use relationships to understand how to have a healthier relationship with God. It's kind of, I mean, we don't use anybody, but it's kind of backwards where Paul is saying, no, look, the bigger thing going on here is not about Jews and Gentiles. There's a more deeper thing, and it's about what you believe about God. And because of that misunderstanding of how you see God and, and how you walk with him, that's manifesting itself in this divisive way of living. Super interesting. So what Paul is doing then is connecting the Christian message to practical life issues, what we were calling occasions. So what is this gospel then that he thinks uh, is to be the foundation of our life that everything else flows out of? Well, let's go through this quickly in, in how the book of Romans is laid out. In Romans chapter 1 to 4, we see there that sin is our root problem. This is the number one problem. We, we often uh, talk about sin as whatever breaks right relationship, and we get this exactly out of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They can't even see what's uh, morally right or wrong because they're committed to being uh, evil. And, and what that evil uh, ends up looking like is a broken relationship with God and then perverted and broken relationships with one another. Sin is always the root problem of division. And then he goes on to say in, uh, in chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned, all have done this and fall short of God's glorious standard. We're all broken. There's, there's, there's nobody who's doing well at this. Now, think of the first reason, the first way that we imagine getting along. It's the opposite of this. We think that the primary way that we would get along with others is by believing the best about them. But doesn't that seem obvious? 
But then Paul comes along and says, no, actually, you have it all backwards. The only way that you're going to get along with each other is if you begin with a common understanding of your brokenness, not your wonderfulness. Uh, This is very different. This is saying that all of us are are broken, sinful people. And if we, if we, this is, I mean, it's a strange way to think, but if we can't be unified in our brokenness, there's no way we'll be unified in our righteousness. It has to start, the, the foundation has to be humility. And so this is where the book of Romans starts. And then in chapters five and six, it says, now that we've established our common brokenness, here's our our common uh, salvation, that we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. We're not saved by rule keeping. That's never worked. We're saved by trusting in the work of Jesus Christ, who forgives our sins and gives us new life in him. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, In Christ Jesus our Lord. We are given a gift of salvation that makes us new people. We have a a restoration to the living God. And out of that center flows everything else. Again, this is the opposite of what the classic solution would be. Point number two was that we should find uh, rules of engagement. Now, we have to admit how deep that runs in our soul. Talk about a value. Uh, Think of a problem that you have with somebody. What's going to be the solution to that? It's going to be somehow that this is what I'm going to expect you to do, and this is what you can expect me to do. Uh, You know, fair? Is it fair? Uh, Have we we factored in uh, all that could go wrong? And then we'll do a fist pump or a high five or whatever it is. We'll agree on it. And we'll go, good. So now we should be able to get along because we've outlined the rules of the game. And Paul comes along and he's saying, oh, it's the exact opposite of that. Rules will never uh, forget, unify you with one another. It'll never unify you with God. Rules can never accomplish that. And so we need to like, reestablish a whole new foundation. And this foundation is not a, it's not a, a concept or a, or, a, or a better rule system. This foundation is a person and his name is Jesus Christ. And to know him and to submit ourselves to him and to receive the life and forgiveness that is only found in him, that is the source out of which we can now be unified with God, reconciled to God and reconciled to others. Just a, a dramatic reversal from what would be uh, a, a natural uh, way that we would think we would get along with others or with God. In Romans 8, 3 and 4, it says, What the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. In order that, now condense verse 4, in order that the righteous might live according to the Spirit. So again, we have an exact opposite. What was point number three? We're going to, through personal effort and, and conviction and motivation and inspiration, we're just going to try to be, be better people and live up to all the rules. And, and, and God comes along through Paul and says, look, the law 
was was uh, was was powerless because we're, we're steeped in uh, in sin and rebellion, and there's no way that rules could ever help with that. And you'll never perform your way well enough. We need the Spirit of God to give us new hearts, to empower us to live in a way that's motivated by love and concern and compassion, that isn't, doesn't have a self-serving agenda. We need to be saved first by forgiveness and then by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. This is just a, a radically different set of values. And so if we imagine that we're going to be getting along with other people by assuming the best, agreeing on better rules, uh, acting well, that set of values is going to run in direct contradiction to what God values. God wants to build our relationship with him on an entirely different foundation. And so then in chapter 9 to 11, Paul now applies this gospel to their particular problem, the issue of division. And so you can imagine how it would be in Rome, where you have the Jews who would understand themselves as being in the lineage of Christianity. And they would say, we're God's chosen people, and now the Messiah has come, and uh, the hopes and longings have now been fulfilled in this Messiah, and so we're going to know better than you as to how to carry out this following of Jesus. And so there's some resentment toward the Gentiles. And then the Gentiles are thinking, well, if you did so well, uh, why are all your people persecuting Christians? Surely there's something that you did not get. And so this is this tension that, we, that they experienced. And so what Paul is doing now is he's taking this gospel that's about a common brokenness, a common need of Jesus, and a common need of his spirit, and saying, this is the new identity that's going to allow you to get along with one another. Now follow this. Your disunity is evidence that there has been something distorted in your relationship with God. And so if you were to just uh, aim at, at fixing your division problem, you'd miss the whole point. The point is, is that it's a symptom of a root. And that root is that you've been building your life on a wrong foundation. And so I need to tell you the right foundation, and his name is Jesus. And if you build on him, then the fruit of that is going to be you'll get along in church and you'll have the kind of human relationships that you've always hoped for. Uh, It's interesting that in the book of Romans, the word all is mentioned 64 times. 64 times. Uh, So unity is built on the fact that all of us are broken, all of us need mercy, and all of us need the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Positivity, rules, and performance are not going to cut it in terms of our relationship with God and in terms of others. What I find uh, very gripping is that Paul is actually the most emotional in these few chapters, 9 to 11. Uh, you look through, your, look, look through the, the passage and you see lots of exclamation marks and may it never be and oh, how I wish. Uh, Paul is pleading with the people to build their lives 
on a better foundation. To say that the, you know, the gospel tree is not built on a, on a heritage or uh, one set of rules versus another set of rules. The, the, the tree of the gospel that, that you're, to, that you're to, be, to be joined into is, is Jesus Christ. And if you uh, rally, if you define your life around any other focal point, not only will it divide you against others, you will have, uh, the, your relationship with God will be stolen from you. And I can't let that happen. And so Paul is using this, this physical issue called division in the church to point beyond itself to something that he cares deeply about for his own people and for the Gentiles. Saying, can't you see that this division is pointing to a thing that's way bigger than uh, some ethnic division or, or, or difference of, of religious past? And then what Paul does in, uh, in the last chapters, 12 to 16, 12 to 15 in particular, is that he then addresses those classic behaviors that we talked about earlier. But here's what's interesting, is now those same behaviors now become expressions of this gospel instead of a replacement of this gospel. And this is what's tricky for us, because we go, well, I, I should, you know, positively, you know, view other people and not think more highly of me than others. That's exactly what Romans says to do. And I should be responsible to, to love and to be respectful and to get along. Yes, yeah, but those behaviors are, are coming from a broken heart that desperately needs Jesus in the infilling of his spirit. It's not coming from a place of, of just uh, negotiation. It's coming from a brand new heart that has been transformed by a relationship with God. And so this is what uh, I get emotional about too because I find it so frustrating. You listen to people say, well, you know, uh, all the world religions are basically the same. Uh, they all have a, have a similar list of, of right and wrong and, and of devotion. And it's like, oh man, oh, how I would know. I would want you to know that behind those rules that you see and that are almost blinded by, there's a living God who's longing to be connected with you, to know you, for you to be responsive to him and humble yourself before him first and be defined by who he is, that he would capture your heart and fill your soul and, and, uh, and capture your imagination and transform you from the inside out. Oh, if you could know him, then you would see those rules in a brand new way. Right now, they're almost a distraction to you. But if you could find Jesus, then those, what you look like as rules, simply become expressions of what Christ has done in our heart and how we long then to live that way between other people. Paul says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Wrap yourself in who he is. And so the way, what people see is Jesus. Like, come into these moments in Christ. 
And this will radically change everything. You know, it, I, I think maybe it's a silly example, but I, I think of the, the way that, that Paul thinks is, he says, think of your life like a tricycle, not a bicycle. Uh, a bicycle is, is two wheels and you, you kind of need momentum to, to stay upright because it's unstable. And I, I think that this is the primary way that we look at life. We go, I'm having a problem with so-and-so. And so what I need to do is I need to sit down with them. I need to express my feelings, listen to theirs. We both respect one another's point of view. We come up with the plan. We execute the plan. And it's just two people kind of uh, working on, on getting along together so that they can kind of move forward. And Paul is saying, you know, that is just, that, that is not what's going on. Life is a tricycle. And so imagine those two human relationships being the two back wheels and what drives everything, what steers uh, where we go is that front wheel. It's our relationship with Jesus. And as we're both leaning on him, then our relationship will find its rightful place and we'll be able to get along together and it'll all work out but it's because we're both being driven forward and submitting to and falling in love with uh, the, the center of our life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I feel Paul's heart. You know, he says to the, to the Roman church, you're bothered about division and so am I. Uh, that, that, that's a real issue and I, I concern myself with it. I'm not dismissive about it or belittling it in any way. But can't you see that the struggles that you have in your life are not about those issues? They're symptoms of what you believe about God and how you walk with him. Can I implore you to make Jesus the center of your life? And so let, the, let your earthly suffering and struggles point beyond itself to your need to know God and be defined by him, to, to experience the forgiveness of sins as you face your brokenness, to be set free from guilt, to find the empowering of the Holy Spirit that you would no longer have to walk in shame. This is what I long for you, church. And why do you keep focusing on such trivial matters? How much money am I going to make? Will I get a, will, you know, will, what is my career path? Will I find that special someone? Uh, uh, how can I get my kids to do their homework? I mean, yes, all oh, that's important. Yes. But can you see that, that, that those struggles are just not the point? And so if you, if you let yourself sit with Paul for a minute, you begin to understand the heart of God. God's saying, can I not heal your relationships in a second? I'm reading through the, the, the book of Proverbs. He says, you know, riches and honor, not a problem. I want to know if, you, if you're wise and humble and walk with me in the fear of the Lord. Like, like care about, if, if you... Let yourself care about me and glorify me, then I can just make those things happen. Like, that is not an issue for me. 
But I want to know, do I have your heart? And so uh, let, let yourself, when you, when you read Romans, don't just try to figure out what all, the, what all the, the points are as he goes through the book. Listen to Paul's heart. And it's a heart that longs for people to prioritize their relationship with God. So, will you let your, uh, your relationship with others be symptomatic of your relationship with God? Will you flip the priority where God isn't just your servant to help you have a better life, but, uh, but your life is designed to reveal your need for God and to find fulfillment in God? Will you let that shift occur? This is Paul's heart in Romans. It's so hard to communicate this because it's uh, going back to, the, uh, to our original thing of where division happens. It's a different set of values. And, and sadly, uh, you and I often come to Jesus with values that are very different than God's. We just want him to fix our life. And he wants us to know him and to be in love with him and to glorify his name. And it's a value clash that causes division with God. But as we let the gospel soak into our hearts, we find ourselves made new. And then all the things that we did value also somehow get fulfilled, but in a brand new way that doesn't uh, distract us from God, it actually draws us deeper into his heart. This is what I pray we'll discover even in this time where isolation, and this, which is a form of division, has been kind of forced upon us. Oh, that we would use this time not just to kind of hold our breath and to wait till we can get back to life as normal, but that we can say, ah, this ache in my heart for connection is actually even pointing beyond the desire for human connection. Father, I see that I need you. And what if this time of isolation will actually be the most fruitful time of relationship that I've ever had? Because now I just get to be with you undistracted. Oh, how I long for your presence, God. That, that this time would be about that. Oh, Father, I pray that we would grab hold of your heart in this time. Just as we try to see Paul's heart in Romans, he points beyond himself to your heart. And that we would take our life circumstances, particularly our division, our separation from others, and we would let that be something that would teach us about you and about how to put you in the middle of our heart. And so we, we shift our values onto what you value, trust and love and relationship and forgiveness in the presence of the Spirit. Oh, Father, let us value these things that we could walk with you and out of that be a blessing to those around us. Thank you for the life that is found in your Son. In his name we pray.